Amen. Amen. Thank God for the blanket of grace. Boy, where would we be today without the grace of God? Thank you, ladies, for singing for us in our service here this evening. Well, I want you to take your Bible, if you will, and open it tonight to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 3. I have an old Schofield Bible. If you have one, that's page number 996. I'd like to read some verses here in just a little bit from this chapter. And then if you'll leave your Bibles open and follow me, I have two or three things I'd like to say about these verses this evening. Well, you know, in the midst of all of this craziness and the, uh, the unnormalcy of our day, you know, there are still some things that just happens to be normal, and I'm glad for it. So this past Thursday night, I had a wedding. Uh, one of our young men in our church got married on Thursday night. I have a couple of pictures here, and uh, this, is, uh, this is Brother Isaac Charles, and this is his bride, Miss Aaron. And, of course, they were married Thursday night, so I guess I could probably say this is Mr. and Mrs. Uh, Isaac Charles. And then, to keep up so we didn't break any laws, I married them, and they had their mask on. All right? And so we had a wedding there. We wish them the best. This, of course, Brother Mark and Miss Melissa, Charles, Isaac, their son. And you pray for them because not only have they gotten married, but now they're both going off to Marine boot camp, of all things, like for a honeymoon. Uh, boy, that wouldn't be much of a honeymoon, was it? Uh, but they took off the Gatlinburg, I think, for a few days. They come back and kind of get back to a little bit of, uh, you know, settled down life. And then I think if I got it right, maybe toward June, they have to go off to... Uh, to uh, uh, to Quantico, I think, up in Virginia, and they have to go to Marine boot camp. They're both going into the Marines as officers, and so, boy, we got to pray about all that for this couple. And uh, so, and I think Isaac's got one more year of college as well, so just a lot going on in that young family. So please remember to pray for them, if you will. And then I got this picture today. They were here. This is the Vaughn family that was here in our service this morning, so they snapped this, sent it to me. So there they are, Brother Tommy, Miss Lisa. There's Angel in the back, and and then the dog's name is Max, Max. And so all the whole family was here this morning along with Max. How many, did anybody in here have your animal with you this morning? Did Layla come? Cool. Did y'all drag cool in this morning? Probably not. So, but we did have some dogs here, didn't we? And so I'm going to bring my chicken with me to church next week. And uh, so, uh, but anyway, thank you. Boy, I appreciate the Vaughn family. Love them dearly. And thank God for them. Could I just mention this now? Don't forget, Wednesday night at 7, we'll be right back here again for our live stream service. Of course, all the radio stations, um, I can't remember all of them, but they're scattered around here in the state. But we're on several radio stations now. And, of course, uh, then a live stream, Facebook and all that. And then next Sunday morning again for our uh, drive-in service, and then, of course, Sunday night back on live stream, at least for a couple of more weeks, getting everything installed and getting ready to open back up again here real soon. All right, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 3. I want to invite you to join me now. If you can, just get your Bible, follow me along as I read the first 12 verses of this chapter, and here is what we read. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, so here's, here's what he's preaching, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when many... 
uh, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father, for I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid into the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, that's 12 verses, the opening 12 verses of Matthew chapter number 3. And I want to ask you to keep your Bibles open and let's talk about what we've just read. Let's pray. Father, bless your word now. I pray and speak to our hearts tonight from this text and help us in these days to glean something. Lord, that will help us to be a better child of God, a better witness, and a better Christian for you as we live out these last days. Bless your word. Thank you for the good music, good singing, Lord, that we've had tonight. I pray now the word of God will do its work in our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, for the last several weeks now, we have been in the opening chapters of the Gospel of Matthew in a series of sermons that I have entitled, Meeting, Meeting the King. The four Gospels, along with the book of Acts, uh, is known as the historical section of our New Testament. What it is, those first five books of our New Testament basically gives us a lot of history in those first five books of our New Testament. The four Gospels give us the history uh, of, of our Savior as far as His earthly life is concerned. Now, of course, we know that Jesus existed long before His earthly life in an eternal life. But basically, all that we know about the earthly life of the Lord Jesus is found in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, these four Gospels present Jesus in a different light. Uh, all four of them present Jesus to us in a different way. For instance, Mark presents Jesus as the servant, the one who came, not to be ministered to, but to minister. In Mark's gospel, he's the servant. In Luke's gospel, he's the son of man. The son of man, Luke 19.10, is come to seek and to save that which was lost. And then in John's gospel, John presents Jesus as the son of God. He is, in fact, the son of the living in God. But in Matthew's gospel, Matthew presents Jesus in a totally different light because Matthew presents to us Jesus as the king. That's, of course, the reason that I'm calling this series Meeting the King. Now, if you think back as we've gone through this thus far, we have talked a little bit back in chapter number one about the ancestry of the king. If one de uh, de uh, declares himself to be a king, he must be able to prove that he comes from a loyal, uh, a royal heritage. And what Matthew chapter number one is, is just presenting to us how Jesus has every right to claim himself, to declare himself to be the king because he comes from a kingly heritage. He is from a kingly ancestry. And of course, we know how all that concludes in the person of the Lord Jesus. So we read a little bit about the ancestry of the king. And then last week in Matthew chapter number 2, we talked a little bit about the arrival of the king, how that Jesus came 
to this earth. And we have all those events uh, of the arrival of the king. Over in chapter number 4, as we see next week, Lord willing, we're going to talk a little bit about the adversary of the king. Chapter 4 introduces us to the Lord Jesus in the wilderness being tempted of the devil. And we talk a little bit, think a little bit about the adversary of the king. And then in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, we're going to look a little bit at the address of the king, what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. But tonight we're in chapter 3. And in chapter number 3, we kind of are introduced a little bit to the announcer of the king. The announcer, the one who proclaimed, who heralded that the king has come. Now i got to stop and tell you something before we get into chapter 3. And that is between chapter 2 and chapter number 3, a long period of time has gone by. You see, as we leave Jesus in Matthew chapter number 2, at the end of chapter number 2, Jesus is around the age of 2 years old and he's living in a town called Nazareth. Joseph has been to get Jesus out of Bethlehem. They go and stay a while in the land of Egypt and once they come back, they don't go back to Bethlehem or Jerusalem, but they come and they dwell in the city, a town by the name of Nazareth. And Jesus, by all accounts, is probably somewhere in his around two years old at the end of Matthew chapter number 2. But as we enter chapter number 3, Jesus is no longer a toddler. He's no longer an infant because as we enter chapter number 3, this is the chapter where Jesus is baptized and he begins his earthly ministry. Now we know that happened according to the gospel of Luke, chapter number 3, verse number 23. We know that Jesus was baptized when he was around the age of 30 years old. In fact, the Bible said Jesus himself began to be about... 30 years of age when he was baptized in the Jordan River. So I say that to say this, some time has elapsed between chapter 2 and chapter 3, perhaps as much as 28 years in the life of our Lord. Now, little is known about those 28 so-called silent years in the life of our Lord. We, we know very little about his life as a child, we know very little about his life as a child, uh, as a teenager, as a young adult. I mean, anything that you would read about that, basically it's just pure conjecture, pure speculation. The only glimpse that we get into the childhood or the boyhood life of the Lord Jesus is in Luke chapter 2, when the Bible said he was 12 years old and he went up with his mama and his, and his foster dad, Joseph, to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of the Passover. And it's almost like the Holy Spirit reaches up and just pulls the curtain back and gives us one little glimpse into the life of the Son of God when he was 12 years old. Oh, but now as we enter this chapter, the Lord Jesus is around the age of 30. At the end of this chapter, he's going to get baptized. I'm going to talk about that a little bit next week. So we know he is now around the age of 30 years old. Now he's the king. And if he's going to be the king, one of the things, according to the tradition of that day, he had to have an announcer. He had to have an introducer. Could I use a Bible word? He had to have a messenger. He had to have a preparer that would go before him and prepare the way. And that's what this chapter really basically is all about. It is about the one that God chose to announce that the king was here. Now, of course, we know I'm speaking about 
John the Baptist. And I want us to look tonight in Matthew chapter number 3 at just two or three things about this announcer, the one who announced that the king is here. Let's talk a little bit firstly tonight, number one, about the ministry of John the Baptist. The ministry. Now, of course, uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but John the Baptist and Jesus were actually some kin. You see, Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, were cousins. So literally, John the Baptist was his some, he was some kin to the Lord Jesus. Now, we have a lot given to us about the life of John the Baptist, especially over in the Gospel of Luke, chapter number 1. We know that John the Baptist, the announcer of the Lord Jesus, came uh, from a very godly family. His mama was a very godly lady. Her name was Elizabeth. His daddy was a very godly man. His name was Zechariah. Zechariah was a priest. He worked around the temple there in the city of Jerusalem. And this godly couple, godly couple who loved the Lord very deeply, very devoutly, but they had a problem. And the problem of John the Baptist's mom and dad was, for some biological reason, they never had a child. Now, you've got to understand back in those days, if a Jewish woman was not able to, to conceive and to bring forth a child, she was looked at as being somewhat of under, uh, some like under a curse by God because she couldn't, she couldn't conceive, she couldn't, she couldn't give birth. And the people looked down. If you want an instance of that, think about Hannah in the Old Testament and how she was mocked and made fun of by Elkanah's wife because she couldn't produce. Some biological reason, this couple could not have a child. And now to beat all that, I mean, they're older. They're way up in years now. And they're well past the age of, of childbearing. But one day while Zechariah was working in the temple, an angel appeared unto him and gave him the good news that his wife was going to conceive and going to have a child. Now, it was a miracle. It was a miracle that John the Baptist was ever born. I mean, old, uh, old, older parents, uh, some biological reason, uh, Elizabeth's womb had been shut up and, and she was unable to produce a, a child. But God, uh, as God has a tendency to do, God can do that which is unimaginable, God can do that, which is, uh, uh, this is a word, unbiologically impossible in our lives. God can do it. God can do anything. And God calls them to be able to produce a child. And God told them that this child was going to be greatly used by the Lord. In fact, let me read to you what the angel told Zechariah about this child that they would give birth to. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord. This is speaking about John the Baptist. He shall be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. Hey, can I stop and say, that's a good thing, isn't it? Not to drink wine nor strong drink. Hey, if you're going to be greatly used by God, you too, I too, can't drink wine nor strong drink. That's the devil's juice. It's brewed in hell and it rots your guts out. That's exactly right. And the Bible said, boy, think about this statement now. And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. Now put that in your theological box and try to figure that one out. I mean, from the very time that this child was conceived and was in, its, in his mother's womb, the Bible said he's going to be filled with the Holy Ghost. You say, preacher, explain if I that one. I can't. I just believe it because of what the Bible said about it. Amen. And then the Word of God goes on to say this about him. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn 
to the Lord their God. Now, what that simply means is John is going to go before Jesus. He's going to be his messenger, his preparer, his announcer. And through that ministry, his job is to announce to the people, get ready because the king has arrived. Now, let me tell you one of the things that really blesses my heart about old John the Baptist. And it's found over in the Gospel of Luke chapter number 3. And in the opening verses of that chapter, uh, what we have there is a list of the who's who of, of John and Jesus' day. I'm talking about all the political leaders that were dotting the political landscape of that day. I'm talking about some big wigs in that day. In the Gospel of Luke chapter number 3, Verse number one, we read about an old boy by the name of Tiberius Caesar. We read about Pontius Pilate. We read about Herod. We read about Philip. And we read about all these other, these, these political bigwigs in, uh, of that day. In chapter three, verse one. In chapter three, verse number two. I mean, we read about the political leaders. We read about the religious leaders. I mean, the who's who of that day. But I love what God did. You know what God did? God skipped right over all that and begin to talk about one old baptizing Baptist preacher down by the Jordan River. Hey, can I tell you something? That tells me a little bit of something about God's people, and that's this. You know, the most important people on the earth tonight are not those who occupy the thrones and the palaces of our day, but the most important people as far as God is concerned. And by the way, that's all that matters, what, how, what God is concerned about. But the most important people in the world today are not sitting in the White House. They're not sitting over in the, in the, uh, in the, in the parliamentary house of, of England. They're not in the, in the uh, Moscow whatever they got in Moscow. I mean, they're not in North Korea. They're not in China. No, sir. The most important people in this world as far as God's concerned is people who are pointing others to the king. That's exactly right. Now, that leads me to make this statement. The great desire of our heart in these days ought to be pointing people to the Lord Jesus. Boy, that's what we're to do as preachers. Hey, we're to say, hey, the king has come. By the way, in our day, what we're saying, the king is coming. You better get ready because the king is coming. We point people to Jesus. Now, I'm a Baptist preacher. Now, don't get mad at me here, but I'm a Baptist preacher. Baptist born, Baptist bred. When I die, I'll be Baptist dead. I am a Baptist preacher. But can I tell you something? I don't want to point people to the Baptist. The Baptist not never saved anybody, not one. No, sir. I, I don't want to point people to the Pentecostals. I don't want to point people to the Lutherans. God, hell, who wants to point people to the Lutherans? I don't want to point people to the Methodists. Can I stop and say, God, hell, who wants to point people to the Methodists? i tell you what our job is to do, to point people to Jesus. The most important work you and I will ever do in these last days is to say, hey, the king is coming. The king has come. The king died. The king rose again. Thank God the king ascended and the king is coming. Well, that's what John the Baptist was doing in his day. Notice, if you will, notice how that his appearance is stunning. Look what we're told about this same John, this Baptist preacher. Boy, he was an unusual, he was a unique individual. By the way, most Baptist preachers I know are unusual. I am one of them. Weird, unique. I mean, look at his appearance. It was stunning. The Bible said that his raiment was of camel's hair 
and a leather girdle about his loins. I mean, everything about that speaks to me of the simplicity of this old Baptist preacher. He had on that that uh, that that raiment of camel's hair, that leather girdle. I think every time he probably moved, that old rough, coarse camel's hair irritated his skin. And he was reminded of how that sin is irritating to a holy God. Yes, sir, his appearance was stunning. Notice this, his appetite was simple. Look again at verse 4. The Bible said that his meat was locust and wild honey. Now, I don't know about the locust part, but I like honey, praise the Lord. I don't know if I could eat locusts. I've seen some chocolate ones before, and I could probably crunch them down. But I, I don't know. His appetite was very simple. But I want you to look in verse number 5. His audience is swelling. I mean, the Bible said in verse 5 that all Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan were going out there to hear this old Baptist preacher announce the coming of the king. Now, the Bible said that his church, if you want to call it that, his church was out in the wilderness. Look back up at verse 1. He was preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now, you would think he'd probably come to Jerusalem, which was the religious capital of the world. That was where he'd want to reach his crowd. But no, sir, he was out there in a waste-barren, howling wilderness among the scorpions and the, and the jackals and the, and the snakes. But people by the droves were coming to hear this old Baptist preacher telling them about the arrival of the king. i tell you what, I kind of got my mind. I know this. I know the Bible says go. We got to go. I get that. And it's our job to go. But I tell you what, bless your heart, I think if a man will get full of the power of God and get full of the Holy Ghost like old John was, people will come to hear what he's got to say. The ministry of John the Baptist. But I want to move secondly, not only to the ministry of old John, but I want to talk a little bit about the message of old John. Now, what was his message? Well, we know that he was the announcer of the coming of the king. I guess maybe we could say it like this. What John the Baptist was, he was a front man for Jesus. He was the, he was the advance man for the king. You know, in our day, any time that our president is going to a certain place, there are always those who go there and precede him. They want to look out for his safety. They want to look out for his security. They want to look out for his comfort. They, they want everything to be just right as far as they possibly can plan it where it's going to be a smooth arrival for the king. They're, they're the front men. They're the security people for the president. They prepare the way for the coming of the president. I remember several years ago uh, when the president came to Winston-Salem here. Now, this is our church was still down on Patterson at that time. And I remember how when the president come, I got two tickets to go to the Coliseum that day to see the president. And uh, so we went over there. I thought we'd knock around a little while. We went by McDonald's, got something to eat, knocked around a little bit, finally got over there. And I estimated there were 3,619,442 in line in front of us. And can I tell you something? We didn't get in to see the president that day. But I was thoroughly impressed by all that was going on around that. I mean, when it became obvious he was supposed to get there at 3.15 and Seth and I were standing in line and, man, we hadn't got very far and it became obvious we're not going to get in to see the president. So they took us all and they put us over in the Bocock Stroud, that old sports building over there across from the Coliseum, and they put iron gates around us. 
But the thing that was so impressive to me, all over the top of them buildings were CIA agents and FBI men. And they were walking around and they were looking with binoculars and they had high-powered rifles on their shoulders. You know why? Boy, they had come to prepare the way of the present. And then when he turned down Deacon Boulevard, I'm telling you, you talk about impressive. I'm talking about black, black Cadillac limousines, uh, probably 253 armed motorcycle cops with their lights blaring and black Cadillac escalades. It was impressive. I mean, it was unbelievable. You know what they were doing? They had prepared the way for the coming of the president. I, I think if I heard correctly what they did, he landed over here in Greensboro. They shut Highway 40 down. I mean, as that motorcade made its way, and then 52 was shut down. And then all the way through the town to wrap around to the Coliseum, they shut all that down. You know what they were doing? They were preparing the way of the president. They were preparing for the arrival of the president. There was a bunch of advanced men out there. Well, that's what John's, John was. He was an upfront man. He was an advanced man for the king. He announced the coming of the king. He prepared people for the coming of the king. Now, I'm very interested in how he did that. Would you notice in our text how John prepared people and announced the coming of the king? Look at verse number, uh, verse number one. It says this, And John the Baptist came strumming a guitar out of the wilderness of Judea. Is that what your Bible said? Now, if you've got one of them funky Bibles, that what it, it may say that. But the way that John prepared people for the coming of the, of the king was through preaching, the preaching of the Word of God. Can I stop and say this? In our day, please, I'm not being, I don't want to be discouraging here, but I'll tell you something. In our day, preaching is no longer enough. Can I tell you that? Preaching is no, if you got a man of God that stands faithfully in the pulpit and preaches the Bible, service in and service out, that's no longer enough to keep people coming to the church. Boy, you've got to have programs for this. You've got to have programs for that. And you've got to have an exciting activity for this and an exciting, thrilling thing going on. You know why? Because we have kind of set preaching to the side. Now we're more interested in what the church can do for me than what I can do for my church. Preaching is no longer enough. Hey, preacher, you've got to plan this. Have this going on. In fact, let me tell you what the church has become in our day. Nothing more than just a social country club where you've got to entertain people or else they'll pull out, run over here somewhere else. And brother, I'm telling you, preaching is no longer enough. But I tell you, bless your heart, that's what got me into the family of God was preaching. And as far as I'm concerned, brother, if a church gets involved, no matter what else they may get involved in, when they set aside the preaching of the Word of God, that church no longer has the right to call itself a church. Amen, preacher. I'm telling you, John announced the coming of Jesus by old-fashioned preaching. He preached the king is coming. You better prepare for the coming of the king. And then here's what he preached about. Look at verse 2. He preached about repentance. Look at verse 2. And saying, here was his message, Prepare ye, uh, repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He said, you got to repent because the king is at hand. That was the very first message of old John the Baptist. Repent. Can I say it like this? Repent, repent, repent. I mean, that's what he preached about. He preached repentance. By the way, can I tell you this? The first message of Jesus 
was about repentance. Turn the page. Look at Matthew chapter 4. Look at verse 17, very first message of Jesus. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent. There it is again. The first message of John the Baptist. You better repent. The first message of Jesus. You need to repent. By the way, the first message the church heard on the day of Pentecost was a message on repentance. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Then said Peter unto them, Repent! There's that word again. The first message that the church heard on the day of Pentecost. And then can I tell you this? Paul's first message. The very first message that Paul ever preached was a message on repentance. Acts chapter 20, verse 21, testifying both to the Jews and also to, uh, to, to, the, to the Greeks. What's the word? Repentance toward God. Can I show you one other thing Jesus said about this? Luke 13, 3, I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Now I know, I get it, I'm, I'm one of us. But we're living in a day and age when you don't hear much about repentance anymore. No, sir. People want to come to church, be made to feel good about themselves. They want to come to church and they want the preacher to stand up and tell them something that's going to make them feel all warm and fuzzy on the inside. They want to come to church and they want to be patted on the back. They want their ego stroked. They want to be positive and encouraging. But the first word of the gospel is the word repent. Amen and amen. And by the way, I know we're 2020. I get all that. 21st century with all the modern marvels of technology. But I want to tell you something. If you're still going to get to God, you're going to have to repent. Amen. You say, preacher, what is repentance? Well, let me, can I give you a progressive definition of what, uh, of, uh, what I mean by progressive? Not the progressive Democrats. God help us. But a, a progressive, I want to take it in three parts about what repentance. First of all, repentance is a change of mind. All right, I'm going to build on that. But it is a change of mind. Now, somebody said, big deal, preacher. I used to change my mind 10 to 15 times a day. You know what I do too? I, I change my mind about what I'm going to eat. I change my mind about where I'm going to eat. I change my mind about which vehicle I might drive. I change my mind about what kind of clothes I'm going to wear, what shirt, what tie, whatever. I change, I change my mind like that too. But can I tell you this? Repentance is a change of mind brought about by the convicting power and work of the Holy Spirit. All right, stay with me now. So repentance is a change of mind that's been brought about by the convicting power and work of the Holy Spirit. Really, can I tell you what repentance is? It's a radical work of God done inside of the heart of a sinner. You change your mind, and it's brought about by the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. So you change your mind about, number one, about your sin. You no longer see sin as something that you desire, something that you love, something that you've got to do. You know what? You see your sin as a holy offense in the nostrils and the face of a holy God. You understand that sin is wicked and vile and ungodly and it's, and it's dangerous. Yeah, you change your mind about your sin. Number two, you change your mind about the Savior. You no longer see God as just a the big guy upstairs. You no longer see God as the old man upstairs. You know what you see God as? As a holy God who's terribly offended by our sin. A holy God. Amen. We see Him as a holy God. So watch this now. Then we change our mind about ourselves. We no longer see ourselves as a pretty good person. 
We no longer see ourselves on a scale of one to ten. Oh, eight and a half. You know what we see ourselves? We see ourselves as a zero with the rim knocked off of it. We see ourselves as a sinner in the sight of a holy God. I'm telling you, conviction is a change of mind brought about by the Holy Ghost, the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. And then here's my third definition that produces a change in your life. Now let's put all that together. Repentance is a change of mind brought about by the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, which leads to a change of life. Now, I get it. I'm like you. I get it. Not everybody. Uh, you know, there's some people get saved and seem like, man, they just, they just leave their sin alone, and it's never a problem to them. There's some people who get saved, and they're back and forward back and they battle it and, they, and sometimes they win and sometimes they lose. But I just want to tell you, true repentance, true repentance, you change your mind because the Holy Ghost has convicted your heart and it will lead to a change of life. Can I tell you that salvation is not just a fire insurance policy to keep you out of hell? Can I tell you that salvation, bless your heart, is intended to change your life? Amen. That's the reason Jesus said down in verse number 8 of this same chapter, He said, hey, why don't you bring forth therefore some fruits, meat for repentance. I'll tell you, there'll be a difference in your life when you get saved. Now, I know sometimes that difference is not as... Uh, it's not as uh, evident in the life of maybe a child as it may be in the life of an old boy that's drunk his whole life. I get all that, but I'll tell you what, there'll still be a change because salvation is intended to change our lives. Now, I want you to look right in, this, right in this camera. Look right at your computer right now or turn up your radio right now and you can go right back to sleep after I make this statement. But i got to ask you a question. What makes you think you can live like hell and die and go to heaven? What makes you think you can live like hell and still die and go to heaven? I'm telling you, bless your heart, when you repent, when you accept the king, this one that old John the Baptist was preaching about, there'll be a change in your life. That's exactly right. And by the way, I'll tell you what, this old message of John, it shook the entire nation. While the Bible said there in verse number 5 that all Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around about old Jordan. You know what I read this week? That it was estimated that over a million people flocked to hear an old Baptist preacher in the middle of nowhere amongst the jackals, the scorpions, and the snakes. They went to hear a message from an old baptizing preacher. Can I tell you this? This really got me. Old John the Baptist evidently had never read a book on how to win friends and influence people. Because there in verse number 7, the religious muckety-muck of that day, uh, they, they all got together and said, hey, let's go out there and let's see what's really going on. Let's go see what all the hoopla is about. I'd see them say something like this. Let's go see what that old country bumpkin has got to say. Well, when they got there, if you'll look there at verse number 7, John went off on them. I mean, he called them a bunch of vipers and a bunch of snakes and a bunch of low-down vipers. I mean, buddy, evidently he had never read a book on how to win friends and influence people. He saw them not as part of the solution. He saw them as a part of the problem. 
You see, John told them there in verse number 5, just because, verse number 9, just because you've been born into the family of Abraham don't automatically make you a child of God. You do understand just because you were born into a family with a mom and a daddy that loved Jesus, that don't automatically make you a child of God. Just because one is born into a Christian nation, and by the way, I don't even think we're a Christian nation anymore, but just because one is born into America, hey, that don't make you a child of God. No, sir. I'm telling you, to become a child of God, you need to be more than just born into a Christian family or born into a Christian nation. That no more makes you a child of God than being born in a garage makes you a car or being born in a hospital makes you a doctor. I go to the hospital a lot, and I haven't gone much recently, but I go over there a lot. And, uh, you know... And sometimes those people over there mistake me for being a doctor. There's one lady in particular, bless her heart, she wears these Coca-Cola glasses. I mean, they're about that thick. And, and every morning, she's on the night floor, and every morning when I go by there, if I'm up on the night floor, she always says, good morning, doctor. And I told her one time, I said, ma'am, I'm not a doctor. I'm a Baptist preacher. But she just keeps on calling me that, so I just now say, good morning, keep walking. But can I tell you something? I, somebody said, how are you a doctor? I was born in a hospital. Oh, so that makes you a doctor. No, sir. Can I tell you something? No more than being born into a Christian family, as in this case, verse 9, you say you're the children of Abraham. Jesus said you're sadly mistaken if you think that makes you right with God. You need more than just a birth into a natural family. To get into God's family, you got to get born into God's family. And it's wrought by a divine miracle. And he illustrates it. Look at verse number, verse number 9. He says this, God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. In other words, he said, big deal. So you were born into Abraham's family. That don't make you right with God, you Pharisees and Sadducees. Uh, he said, uh, God could take a bunch of rocks over here and cause these rocks to be children for Abraham. By the way, can you imagine that, an old lifeless, dead, dumb rock laying over there? Can I tell you something? The only way that lifeless, dumb, dead rock could become a child is by divine, a work, uh, it could only be wrought about by divine working of God. Miraculous. Can I tell you, the only way you can get in the family of God is to be divinely, miraculously born into God's family. Amen and amen. And that's the reason old John said this. Look at verse 8. He said there's fruits. And then down there in verse number 9, verse 10, he starts talking about roots. Look what he said in verse Verse 10, now also the axe is laid into the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down. And can, can I tell you something? Root determines fruit. And buddy, if, you, if your root ain't right, excuse my English, your fruit ain't going to be right. But you let an old boy get right in the root, his heart, that old boy will start producing fruit on the outside of his life for the glory of God. You've got to get right on the inside before you can ever get right on the outside. I'm talking about the message of John the Baptist. I'm through with this, but look at this. Not only the ministry and the message, but would you look there at verse 11 and verse 12? Can I mention the master of John the Baptist? John said this, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance. But then he starts talking about the king now. And here's what he says, He that cometh after me is mightier than I whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. John begins talking about 
the master. Notice the preeminence of it. He, uh, he said, uh, he, he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. The preeminence. You know, they actually came to John one time and said, are you the Christ? Are you the one? He said, no, sir, I'm not. In fact, I'll tell you this, I'm not even worthy to get down and unlash his shoes. No, sir, but i tell you what, he's coming. He's here. You need to get ready for him. And can I just say, he is pre he's preeminent above all. He's king of kings. He's Lord of lords. I'm telling you, he's the judge of all the earth, the preeminence. Then he talks about the purpose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Well, I'm glad I got baptized with the Holy Ghost. Somebody said, have you been saved, sanctified? Have you been saved, sealed, sanctified, baptized with the Holy Ghost? And you can get mad at me if you want to, but save your stamps because I ain't changing my mind on this. All that happened to me the very moment I got saved. I was saved, sealed, sanctified, baptized by the Holy Ghost the very moment I got saved. That to me deals with the first coming of Jesus. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. But then that last phrase, and with fire, that speaks about the punishment of Jesus. That speaks about His second coming. In other words, if you will not allow Jesus to baptize you with the Holy Ghost, and we know that happens. The moment we get saved, the Holy Ghost comes into our heart, takes up His abode, and baptizes us, brings us into the family of God. But if we refuse that baptism, then there will be another baptism, and this time it will be with fire, the punishment. And I close, but look at verse 12. Whose fan is in his hand, he'll thoroughly purge his floor, he'll gather his wheat into the garner, but he'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now look at me and we're done. 637. I got 636, so give me one more minute. Can I tell you something? Everybody that I'm speaking to right now is destined for one or two places. You're either going to be barned or you're going to be burned. Is that not what verse number 12 teaches us? That one of these days the king is going to gather all of his wheat into the garner, to the barn. But all that old chaff, all that that's not wheat is going to be burned with unquenchable fire. So that leads me to say this. Are you going to be burned or are you going to be burned? Well, it all depends on what you do with Jesus. Do you know him tonight as your Savior? Have you ever met the king? Has the king ever entered your heart? There's an old Jamaican spiritual that goes something like this. There's a flag flying high in the castle of my heart when the king is in residence there. Hey, is the king in residence in your heart, the castle of your heart? Is the flag of grace flying over the castle of your heart? Is the king in residence there? If he's not, friend, I'll tell you what, you're not going to be barned. You're going to be burned. But don't have to be like that because you tonight can be saved by simply accepting the king, the Savior, into your heart. I pray God will help you to do it. Let's bow our heads. Father.